Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Friday, July 7th, 2023 edition of On Iowa Politics. On the podcast this week, a special legislative session on abortion, some big ESA numbers. Governor Reynolds joins the Mamas for Casey DeSantis. Mike Pence is back in Iowa. Iowa's Ag Secretary talks land ownership. And the Davenport City Council pulls the plug on public comments. Full roster of stuff to talk about, full roster of uh, reporters on the podcast this week. Hello, everyone. I'm Aaron Murphy, the Des Moines Bureau Chief for the Gazette in Cedar Rapids. With me this week are Gazette Deputy Bureau Chief Tom Barton. Hello, Tom. Hello, Aaron. Lee Lee Des Moines Bureau Chief Caleb McCullough is here. Hello, Caleb. Good morning, Aaron. We have Sarah Watson of the Quad City Times. Hello, Sarah. Hello, Aaron. Jared McNeil, the Tuesday Journal, is here. Hello, Jared. Aaron, my, my ears are still ringing from Tuesday, so you're gonna have to you're gonna have to speak up, okay? I can't just please <laughs> talk talk loudly. I tell you, man, Northeast Ankeny loves them some fireworks. I didn't have to go to a, a, a show anywhere. I, I had one in my neighborhood. Holy moly! And finally, Gazette columnist Todd Dorman is here. Hello, Todd. Hello. All right. Um, so as we get started this week, I wanted to tell our listeners that I was calling through possible discussion topics and our intrepid Sarah Watson had two really interesting stories that I was trying to decide between. And so I didn't. That was much easier. So let's just talk about both. Uh, so, Sarah, uh, in one of your stories, you wrote about Iowa Ag Secretary Mike Nag, who made some remarks at a Quad City event there. Um, and I was struck. Um, he was asked about foreign farm land ownership. And uh, Sarah, you, re- you cited some reporting done by the Gazette's better Aaron, Aaron Jordan. Uh, and sh- her story showed that nearly 600,000 acres of ag land in 220, sorry, in 2020 was owned by people from other countries. Um, so, so he got asked about that at, at that event and, and I thought his response was sort of interesting. Sarah, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so he was in Bettendorf and he spoke with um, a group of farmers, agribusiness leaders and uh, lenders in an event hosted by a local bank. And um, so, yeah, so he 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 went on a spiel. He mostly talked about the farm bill um, and a few other agricultural um, updates. But then the first question when they got to a Q&A was um, about foreign land ownership. And so, like you said, Aaron, I was one of 21 states in the country that prohibits foreign land ownership and but still has about 600,000 acres of ag land in 2020 owned by people from other countries. And so Nag referenced that ban and he he basically said he thinks that I was doing okay in terms of protections that the state has in place about agricultural uh, banning foreign ownership of ag land, but also he's been getting he said he's been getting a lot of questions about how 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 are they sure are they sure that that ban is being enforced? And he actually said that he was um, working with, between the Secretary of State, the Attorney General, and himself, they were working on what they could do in terms of reporting and uh, figuring out what the Attorney General's ability would be to go and investigate who owns the land um, and whether she has the resources to do that. And he said, because I want to stand in front of this group, in front of Iowans and say, we have a prohibition and it works and I can prove that to you. So it sounds like it's something that he's thinking about and other state uh, executive branch leaders are, are thinking about land owner, foreign land ownership and foreign investment um, and, and how to enforce Iowa's ban. Um, and then the follow-up question to that uh, was, how is uh, how does religious 
group's ownership um, factor into that. And so Aaron Jordan also um, reported that the Church of Latter-day Saints owns about, more commonly known as the Mormon Church, owns at least 22,000 acres of Iowa farmland, which is worth more than $250 million if you take an average per acre price. And so his answer to that was interesting because he said churches are not prohibited from owning farm ground. Um, and he, he, he said uh, that, he, that there could be some activity that happens next to you that doesn't feel good. We've all had our eye on a farm that we sure wanted but didn't get. That doesn't make it illegal. I'm trying to look at the appropriate role for the state when it comes to property rights. Uh, so he said, then your ability to sell land to someone is one of your property rights. So we have to meet that. But at the same time, he said that he thought there were fairness issues around tax treatment um, because somebody had brought up um, churches have a tax exempt status or had asked about that. So, um, so I thought that was interesting. It seems like it's something that, uh, that the agriculture department and other state leaders are, are thinking about. Yeah, that that's I mean, that was all interesting, but especially that answer to the, the question about the um, the, the church and uh, ownership. And I thought that was interesting. Like it, it wasn't the typical um, um, appeasing of the crowd answer. Like you kind of to straight out told them, look, I, they have the right to buy land just as much as you do. There's only so much we can do about it. Now, it'll be interesting to, to your point. Um, it sounds like there are. Um, tires being kicked, and we may see a, a bill or two at the at the Capitol uh, next session. Um, uh, so that'll be an interesting one to watch. Um, and Sarah, China, is, oh, sorry, go ahead, Jared. I, I was going to say China, uh, and it actually came up in my uh, Pence event that I covered. China obviously comes up a lot in these discussions, and it's always worth pointing out that of the countries that own U.S. agricultural land, China is behind like Canada by quite a bit, and also the Cayman right. Islands, which is really funny to to think about. So this isn't a problem of just like one or two countries like owning land in the U.S., even though some of them are obviously more of like a uh, a world rival than others. Uh, so between. Canada there and uh, the Mormon church and the other one, I have multiple May, uh, Matt Stone and Trey Parker jokes running through my head. Here. <laughs> <laughs> blame, blame Canada. And, and uh, um, anyways, I'll, I'll just skip uh, um, <laughs> the other story, um, uh, Sarah, that I wanted to ask you about. And this is really interesting too. Uh, the Davenport City Council uh, recently uh, decided to turn off its live stream camera during the public input portion of council meetings. Uh, apparently some heavy criticism uh, and allegations levied by public speakers regarding the recent downtown building collapse led the council to decide to turn off the streaming lights during public comment to avoid broadcasting those criticisms. Um, uh, Sarah, I like that you reached out to Iowa Freedom of Information Council, Randy Evans, to, to frame this action around the state's open meetings law. And, and it's not a violation of the law because the law doesn't require government bodies to stream meetings in the first place. But there was a pretty big however from Randy there, wasn't there, Sarah? Yes. So, yes, we talked about this briefly on the podcast last week. But, yeah, the, um, the city has said that they won't be streaming public comment anymore. And Randy Evans, yeah, said, while that's not illegal under Iowa public records law, it certainly isn't keeping in with the spirit of Iowa's public records law and uh, and that um, it, that it really seems that city officials want 
as small an audience as possible to, to see criticism of, of a Tamley of the Davenport building collapse. Um, and then on this past Wednesday, the mayor announced a uh, new, even more strict policy that uh, if a public commenter starts making um, defamatory or personal attacks that he would end their public comments and, and make a motion to adjourn the meeting. Um, so he didn't do that at Wednesday's meeting um, but it was, it was kind of unclear, you know, what, what would rise to that level. And he made a mention that he would take input from the city attorney, um, on, on what, what would constitute that. But, um, so that was a, that was a recent development. Yeah, I saw that too. And I, I apologize. I, I didn't realize you guys covered this last week on the podcast that I definitely listened to, uh, while I was off. Um, I, I just forgot. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I was going to ask you about that because I saw that too. So now this week, the mayor's threat to just shut it down. And I don't know, that seems interesting to me. That also probably doesn't violate open meetings laws to the letter of the law, but it sure seems like violating the spirit of it again. Um, man, interesting. All right, moving on, because I suppose some of these other chuckleheads also did some reporting this week. Uh, the, the biggest news out of the Iowa Capitol this week was Governor Kim Reynolds' announcement that there will be a special session of the Iowa legislature on Tuesday to draft new restrictions on abortion access in Iowa. This special session really did always seem like a win, not if, and, and so here we are now. Um, we're headed back to the Capitol on Tuesday. Uh, Todd, I wanted to ask, did you ever cover the special session during your time in the legislative meet? Do you have any um, advice for Tom, Caleb, and I? And now a recurring segment called Back in My Day <laughs> with Todd Dorman. Uh, old guy. <laughs> back in my day, you know, special sessions were not all that special because in the 10 years I covered the Capitol every day, there were seven. I saw that there uh, was a string of like four years in a row. Yeah, well, they had Democratic Governor Tom Vilsack and Republican legislature. Mm. So they came one of them was redistricting in 2001 uh you know there and then there was a there were you know numerous ones like maybe four or five that were dealing with budget disagreements and i think it was like april of april of uh 2002 election year Vilsack was up for election he was upset about the school funding they passed so he called them back in april like right after the session and the republican Senate and House gaveled in and gaveled out. They refused to take any action. So then they came back in May and, and fixed things up. And I, one of the one of the strange things about the special sessions I covered was the lo lo logistics. There, I got it out. Uh, in 2001 and 2002, the Capitol was under renovation. And so when they came back in November of 2001 to fix the budget after the after the economic downturn following the 9-11 attacks, uh, the House had to meet in the in room 116. Oh, wow. If you can imagine that. Uh, and then in April for redistricting, they, they met at the State Historical Building for the same reason. Uh, and then in 2002, there was a, one special session where the Senate had to meet in room 22 and the House met in the old Supreme Court chambers. So in in warming, increasingly warm months here, we're talking about, too. Yeah, at least the, for all of you who have been to the Capitol. The room well, 116 session was in November, luckily. So that was okay. a okay. little bit cooler. But Ooh. yeah, so that was a that, 
yeah, they, they had like a press area in there and everything. We just kind of sat at these tables at the far back of the room. And I, I don't think all lawmakers were in there for most of the time, but yeah. Yeah, it was, it was kind of a logistical nightmare, but, uh, yeah. and the one I, there were seven sessions. I didn't cover one of them. That was the 2006 session where they came back to override a, um, Tom Vilsack's veto of a property rights bill. I had yeah. the audacity as a state house reporter to schedule a medical procedure in July. So that was my bad, I guess. Oh my gosh. That's one of those. Oh my God. I'm, I'm just imagining that. The, the, and then the odds of that, that happening that way, that astronomic unreal. Yeah. Um, I think 2006 was the last time they had a special session. Isn't that. Other than the redistricting one. In yeah. Year, right. Right. Yep. That, that put an asterisk on those uh, in my mind. Cause that's uh, just clean up work. Um, so, so Todd uh, looking ahead to Tuesday, it, <clears throat> It doesn't seem that there's a lot of uh, drama um, here. We we know what they're going to do. We know it's not going to take them long. Um, sh- should we be on the lookout for anything unexpected, or do you expect this thing to go by the numbers pretty much? I mean, the only thing that could be unexpected is if some, you know, if they if they do the 2018 bill as as expected, as we expect. Yep. Uh, will there be any Republicans who? try to amend it to make it tougher. I mean, I think that could be interesting. You know, you know, usually you have caucus discipline and you don't do stuff like that, but this is one of those issues that sometimes people feel strongly enough about it. They don't, they don't want to be told what to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, it'll be interesting to see how many Republicans uh, don't vote for the bill. I mean, I, I, obviously it's not enough to sink it because they wouldn't be coming back if they didn't have enough votes. But that's another interesting wrinkle. And and I don't know what procedural maneuvers they're going to use to try to limit debate or amendments or any of that stuff. Because if if it's a wide open debate, it could I mean, it could last. It could be an extra long special session. So (laughs) that would be they they usually don't last long. But if you let the Democrats talk about this, then it it could it could take a while. An extra special special session. Um, this isn't confirmed, but the early whispers, the early chattering that I'm seeing is that they're going to limit debate at a time certain. It and, and that, yeah. I think it sounds like they're going to give them the whole day, so it'd be like late Tuesday night. Um, but it, it sounds like they're not going to let it trickle into the wee hours of Wednesday and beyond. Well, it, it's also going to be interesting to see how many you know citizens on either side show up at the Capitol to yeah. uh, protest or celebrate but yeah what's um what are the odds uh that this doesn't end up back at the uh iowa supreme court again <laughs> do you uh do you allow numbers less than zero in this <laughs> uh <laughs> question <laughs> yeah yeah and 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 everybody on all sides is aware of that that's essentially the goal of this uh for republicans they know that it's going to get challenged by the courts and and then the question is does does the supreme court ultimately apply a different legal standard of review to this that that's that's the the end game here uh which gosh who knows how that could be the end that could be this time next year that we're just you know talking about that it could be the end of the 23 24 session um and and um conceivable it even goes into a, a beyond that that it even takes longer it takes a couple years so and then then they come back in special session to impeach for 
I was just Supreme Court justices. I was just gonna say they finished it up in 24 just in time for um, uh, impeachment or uh, another um, retention campaign. <clears throat> Obviously, <clears throat> pardon me, um, a story that will continue. But uh, uh, special session Tuesday. Obviously, the team here will will be covering that, and we'll have plenty to talk about on next week's podcast. All right, um, moving on and speaking of hot legislative topics, this week the governor's office released information on the first batch of applications to Iowa's new private school financial assistance program, that's ESAs or vouchers to the politically inclined among our listeners. And there were some big numbers. Uh, Tom, tell us about some of the biggest. As soon as you unmute yourself. Yeah, sorry. So more than 29,000 Iowa students applied to receive roughly $7,600 in state money to be used to pay for private school costs such as tuition and fees. And nearly 17,500 students, the majority of whom already attend private schools, have been approved so far, uh, Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds announced on Thursday. Um, Those numbers exceed state projections that um, predicted a little over 14,000 students would be approved to receive education savings accounts in the program's first year. There's a big caveat here. However, the final cost of the program and the final number of uh, education savings account program participants will not be known and will not be available until certified school enrollment numbers are finalized in October, according to Reynolds' office. And it should be pointed out that not every family approved may be able to use the state-funded assistance um, as space is limited at Iowa's public schools. So the governor's office said accredited private schools have reported that there are um, roughly 9,000 slots available across the state for new private school students, meaning there could be more students approved than seats available in private school. So um, the uh, way that it works is um, getting approved for an education savings account is separate from um, getting accepted or enrolling in a um, accredited non-public school. Um, So um, the way that that process works is that Um, Again, in addition to applying for an ESA, families apply to the accredited non-public school of their choice, and if accepted, they will later update their ESA account indicating the school their child plans to attend. Um, Accounts will be funded uh, beginning July 15th, according to the governor's office. Um, The school then sends an invoice for tuition and fees to the ESA account. And then once parents approve the payment, funds are transferred from um, a state-owned bank account to the school, and the student is considered enrolled, um, according to the governor's office. Um, If a student's ESA has been funded, um, but he or she does not attend an accredited non-public school by um, September 30th, the ESA will be closed and the funds will be uh, retained by the state um, and returned to the general fund, according to the governor's office. Um, So um, getting back to your initial question uh, about the numbers, um, just in addition to, um, you know, the the sheer number of um, people that applied for the program, which is, um, you know, again, more than double um, kind of what state officials had expected, 
Um, the other interesting thing is the uh, breakdown between um, public school students versus those already attending private school who have applied for assistance. So um, this is as of Thursday, 40% um, or roughly 7,000 of the 17,500 application approved were students planning to move from a public to an accredited private school in Iowa. Um, and um, so that's that's more than um, the uh, 4,841 students that the nonpartisan legislative service agency predicted would transfer in, in the first year. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, the remaining 60% um, um, are students already attending accredited private schools um, who met uh, the income eligibility. So for this yeah, first that, year, go ahead. Sorry, I was just gonna say in that, because that's an, an interesting point to, to make too, like the, the, the private school student applications, only a, a certain segment could even apply this year and under, as they roll out this over multiple phases over years. So, that, so, so those numbers come in, um, you know, under constraints that even more people are going to be apply, able to apply the next year and the year after. Right. So um, this gets phased in um, over three years. So for this first year, um, you know, beginning with the um, upcoming school year that starts in the fall, all incoming kindergartners and all K through 12 students currently attending um, a public school who choose to enroll in an accredited non-public school are eligible um, for the ESA program regardless of income. And then also eligible are students who um, are, are attending, currently attending an accredited private school um, this past school year if their household income is at or below 300% of the um, federal poverty level. So that equates to about um, $90,000 or less for a family of four. Um, that eligibility expands in the 2024-25 school year to include households um, that um, are at or below 400% of the poverty level, so about $120,000 or less for a family of four. And then beginning in the 2025-26 school year, all K-12 through students statewide become eligible regardless of income. It's going to be interesting to see, and I think that we did some reporting about this um, early on, just like how that this expands the market for, for private schools, because as you mentioned, Tom, um, the space right now is is pretty limited, and all of the people who approve receive these uh, accounts won't be able to enroll in a private school. So obviously in the coming years when schools have that demand and, and you know a community might have a demand but no private school will we start seeing these pop up and these schools expand so uh it'll be, it'll be interesting to watch yeah the other um interesting thing is the governor's office did provide um kind of an income breakdown um and what was interesting to me is that the average net household income for applicants moving from public to private school um, is um, $128,500. Um, while the average net household income for current private school applicants um, was um, a little more than $62,000, according to the governor's office. Yeah. Of course, again, that's artificially deflated because of the requirements. Like only the lowest income private school families could apply in this first year. Right. But yeah. Yeah. Yeah, obviously fascinating stuff, some really big numbers, even bigger than we expected. And then, and as Tom alluded to, now we watch and see how many of these folks actually get into a school and, and how many of these ESAs the state ends up 
having to fund next year. Um, uh, obviously, a story that we'll keep following. All well, right, and, and, oh, sorry. Go oh, ahead, Jerry. Sorry. Uh, no, and and with with it with all this too, I do wonder. You know, some of these schools that already exist that are private schools, like if they're going to have to, you know, add on to their schools to maybe incorporate the higher demand, and then of course that means their tuitions are going to have to probably go up to uh, pay for those uh, accommodation costs they're going to incur. <laughs> yep. No, Absolutely. we can we can just we can just set up a state private school infrastructure fund. But it, you know, money's no object, obviously. So let's go for broke. <laughs> I, I, I hear uh, legislative Republicans' pencils hitting the paper right now, Todd, as they hear that. Hold on, that's a really good idea. Yeah, yeah, it is. When, when, it. Uh, when we see the bill uh, next year, we'll give you partial credit. <laughs> All right, let's finally get out on the caucus campaign trail here on the podcast. Uh, former Vice President Mike Pence was back in town. Uh, Jared, you covered Pence up in Western Iowa. Um, I want to tell me about all that coverage and what stood out to you, but I'm, if I could make a request, please start with the anecdote that you tweeted about about a Trump supporter's uh, unique. Uh, I guess he didn't greet Pence. Pence wasn't there yet. He was kind no, of was he, he like was not on the grounds. The yeah, he was, but he was addressing the room. Um. So so yeah, Mike Pence uh, took part in the uh, proud Iowa tradition of campaigning at a pizza ranch. On Wednesday, uh, the Sioux City Pizza Ranch on uh, Floyd Boulevard, to be exact. And um, on the way into the uh, the pizza ranch, a man in a, uh, a white Trump cowboy hat uh, told our photographer, uh, Jesse, that he was there to see weak pence. Um, and that, in some ways, was kind of a harbinger of how pence was received by a segment of the, the conference room. Not Not everyone in the room. But but a segment of the room uh, at the pizza ranch, one woman um, flatly told Mike Pence that he was to blame for Joe Biden being president because Pence didn't sufficiently stand up for Trump on January 6th. Um, there was another attendee who flat out asked Pence why he should vote for Pence instead of Trump, um, which, you know, obviously at these kind of events, people will ask, why should we vote for you? But they usually don't say, why should we vote for you instead of this other candidate? Right. Um, and then someone else, uh, clearly thinking of Trump, asked Pence um, if he was a street fighter. And Pence responded, you know, the way you fight in Washington, D.C., you stand your ground and say, I'm not moving, which was a line that got applause from a majority of the people in the crowd. Um, and Pence also got a, a big applause when he said that letting um, trans women compete in women's sports would be an erosion of progress. But uh, some of that applause for, for Pence, like when he talked about standing his ground, uh, actually came from a couple people that were there who were self-described Democrats uh, who came to hear Pence talk. Um, so that's not something to bank on necessarily in a Republican primary. Um, <laughs> that's gonna that's gonna be tough to translate that to caucus support. Yes, and, and then you know after the event, he got more than one question from national press about um, January sixth related issues. So when those are the kinds of questions he's still getting, not just from media, but from portions of the crowds that he's getting, I don't know how he moves past that and gains in the polls. Like it, at least for this cycle of the campaign stops I've been to, and I've covered almost every candidate at least once now, except for Doug Burgum, uh, I think, and Asa Hutchinson. Um, this was definitely the testiest of those events. Um, and Pence clearly does have supporters. You know, he's at, Six and a half percent in the polls, which is third to Trump and DeSantis, but it's still third. Um, and he's getting people to show up. And like the room was, yes. Sorry. 
and, and he's getting people to show up. You know, the room was crowded, but some of the people that are in those rooms think that he's entirely to blame for Biden being president. And that seems really hard to like politically jujitsu and, and move past. And it also speaks to, I mean, the part of the reason, you know, part of the reason I wanted you to tell that story is because it's funny, but part of the reason is because it illustrates, I mean, what, what Pence and, and to, to a lesser degree, the rest of the field, but especially Pence is up against here. I mean, you have people who are clearly coming out to events just to heckle and or express their opposition to a candidate. Like they're not coming yes. out to shop or consider or hear. They're these are Trump supporters who want to come out and express their Trump for support, their support for Trump at another candidate's event. I mean, that's if anything, that's that's such an illustration of the the wall that these other candidates have to climb over in this primary. All right. Interesting. Um, let's see. Um, also on the caucus campaign trail. Um, and, and lastly, this week, uh, we, and I'm speaking for the Des Moines Bureau here, the, the individual papers may handle things differently, but uh, we typically don't cover campaign candidates, surrogates, especially when the field is there's enough candidates. We don't need to cover surrogates. But there are exceptions to every rule, and uh, this week was one such exception. Uh, Caleb covered Ron DeSantis's wife, Casey DeSantis, who was joined at a Mamas for DeSantis event with Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds. Um, Caleb, for, I mean, for us here and for the people who listen to an Iowa politics podcast, we can probably guess what policies uh, Casey DeSantis leaned into at this event. So um, I'm not so much worried about that. I'm more curious about what kind of crowd came out to this, see this event. So much about the Iowa caucuses, as we just said in the previous block, is about candidate shopping. And we're starting to make our way into the really heavy candidate shopping season. The introductions are done. People are starting to really think hard about their choice if they haven't yet. Um, and so this event, did, did you, Caleb, did you get a sense of what kind of Iowans were there? Was this just an event full of people who were already on the RDS Express or or, or were there, um, trademark by the way, um, or were there any shoppers who uh, came out to actually hear from a candidate's spouse as they consider who they want to support in the caucuses? Yeah, I'd say it wasn't too different from your regular presidential caucus event. Um, I talked to a few attendees, and uh, there was one I, that I talked to who was um, a committed DeSantis supporter, but the others were uh, were just doing the shopping. Um, and oh, you know, the main, yeah, um, and and obviously I can't speak for the whole crowd, um, but that was my uh, my kind of. Uh, rough estimate um the main difference i would say to to other events was there were definitely more women in their 30s and 40s um than you see at most of these events um so kind of that target demographic of of women with uh moms with school-aged children and um also there was a big contingent of moms for liberty there a lot of people wearing their moms for liberty shirts um i think some decided between their moms for liberty and their mamas for DeSantis shirts <laughs> And, you know, that that group um, has been behind some of these conservative laws banning um, LGBTQ topics and sexual content from school curriculum and library books. Um, but I didn't get a sense that many of them were, you know, totally on board for DeSantis. Um, and they just, you know, were, were there to, to hear what Casey DeSantis had to say um, and wanted to, uh, you know, judge her and, and, you know, by extension, Ron DeSantis's positions on these parental rights issues. Um, and I do think that Ron DeSantis is trying to, um, in some way, own this part of the kind of culture war area during this primary. 
Florida was, was obviously one of the first states to um, lead with some of these laws that like banning um, LGBTQ topics in elementary school and DeSantis, uh, or at least the Board of Education in Florida actually extended that to all grades with some exceptions this year. Um, so, you know, other candidates have similar messages on this front. Uh, Donald Trump and Mike Pence speak about parental rights quite a bit. Um, so, you know, this is a lane that there's a lot of competition for, but I think people who care about the issue are still fielding the candidates and, and trying to find out who speaks to the best on, on that particular issue. Yeah. And, and was it mostly on that? Did she talk about any other kind of, you know, did Casey DeSantis talk about the economy or foreign policy or? There was, there was a little bit, um, very, uh, different topics that were talked about it was it was heavily focused on on that um parents rights issue about um school choice she talked right. about uh and and kim reynolds obviously um touted that up and um but you know there was also some talk about uh uh ron DeSantis's response to the hurricane um last mm -hmm. year two years ago recently and kind of um building him up as as a strong leader who you know can take decisive action and make things happen quickly um Casey DeSantis spoke about a program in Florida that she um, has some involvement in that uh, is not really related to that issue, but um, deals with connecting nonprofits and private businesses to people in uh, need of economic assistance. Um, she said that that has gotten people off of public assistance programs um, by, uh, you know, crowdsourcing these resources. So she talked a little bit about that as well. So it was it was some broad policy stuff some you know also some kind of just personal stories um that weren't necessarily yeah. policy related so yeah a, a good mix of stuff yeah so this would now be the what third or fourth um DeSantis or DeSantis related event that Kim Reynolds has uh has been a part of in uh, one form or another at least three I know yeah. for sure off the top of my head and I, and and today as we're speaking you know Trump's in council bluffs and I I don't think that she was a part of that event in any way was she I do not believe so. No. And she wasn't okay. she wasn't expected to be during his last visit in uh, or his his planned rally in May. So, yeah. Right, right. <laughs> like, that's probably that's probably that's probably questions. He's not probably, he's just asking the questions. Probably probably nothing. Probably probably nothing. <laughs> oh, interesting. Interesting. Man, so that was awesome. A lot of great stuff. If you're not fulfilled at the end of this podcast folks i don't know what more we can do for me great great stuff from all the team here as always so much going on uh everyone's out there um covering it and giving it back to you so hope thanks for listening um uh we hope you enjoyed it uh and if you did tell your friends subscribe to us wherever you find your podcasts and now that you've listened to the on iowa politics podcast make sure you're also subscribed subscribe to the on iowa politics newsletter where i attempt to learn to talk and every morning in your inbox, you'll receive all the latest politics and government coverage from our team. I'm just so impressed by all our work that I'm just over, overwhelmed and verklempt. I can't even talk. Uh, you can subscribe to that free newsletter at the Gazette's website, thegazette.com. And lastly, don't forget that the work of everyone you heard here today can be found on the pages and websites of the Quad City Times, Muscatine Journal, Cedar Rapids Gazette, Waterloo, Cedar Falls Courier, Mason City Globe Gazette, Council Bluff Daily Nonpareil, and the Sioux City Journal. Now that I make it through fine, go figure. Lodro Russo will play us out this week. If you know an Iowa band or musician who should be featured on the podcast, please send us a sound file. For Tom Barton, Caleb McCullough, Sarah Watson, Jared McNett, Todd Dorman, and our producer, Stephen Colbert, I'm Aaron Murphy. Thank you all for listening.
Get a daily update from the Gazette with our daily news podcast. Add it to your podcast player or your Alexa-friendly device to get a bite-sized local news update each day. Check it out at thegazette.com slash podcasts.